0: So...
1: Again, I enjoyed and appreciated those two songs. One way we can measure the, uh, the quality of our spiritual life, I believe, is how loud does God have to speak to get our attention, and uh, what must he do before we are aware that he is speaking to us. I appreciated that first song, being silent in the presence of God and waiting for him. So welcome again tonight, and especially welcome you young people. I uh, usually don't talk to young people specifically because uh, you young people are no different species than the rest of us, and the same truth would apply in all of our lives and all of our needs. And uh, But I'm glad to share this subject with you this evening, and with all of us, but for you because uh, the decisions that you're making and the direction you're going and and so on, is a very important part of your life. And, and I believe probably the next 10 years for you is probably the most important decade you'll have. And uh, sometimes I think about trajectory, what that means. If you throw a stone through the air, you can mark, if you know the velocity and the direction and the speed, you can figure out where it's going to land and what arc it'll trace. Look on the back of a box of bullets, it often has there traced on there the, the trajectory these things are projected to do. And it doesn't take much movement at the end of a gun barrel to make a big difference at 100 yards. It doesn't take much difference in direction in the life of a teenager to make a big difference in 50 years. And uh, the next 10 years are years that habits become more entrenched. You know, the nearer to the end of our life we get, the less difference overall our choices will make. We can still make choices, but uh, our habits become entrenched. Our direction has been set. And uh, we thank God for, for uh, the possibility to repent and change and, and do things differently, but these are important years. One of the most basic questions to establish, I believe, in our lives is a question of ownership. Uh, the most frustrated Christian that I know is a double minded Christian who doesn't know who he's serving and doesn't know uh, who's driving and doesn't know what it's all about or who's calling his shots. A frustrated Christian is one that hasn't yet come to grips with lordship in his life. There was a wicked king in the Old Testament that came face to face with this question. And this is 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together, and there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city, and said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also, and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. Now you can imagine Ben-Hadad inside this palace with all his goods, and he has wealth, and he has wives, and he has children, and he has things that he appreciates, enjoys, and loves. And uh, he's sitting down there, it's all his, but there's a knock on the door, and Ben-Hadad is outside the gate, and he... uh, sends a message that all the things you think are yours are actually mine. Uh, That's the requirement. Your gold, your silver, your children, your wives are mine. Imagine that position. You're backed in a corner. There's no place to go. There's no resisting because he doesn't have the strength to resist such a a command from an army outside the gate. And Ahab said in verse 4, The king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying... I am thine and all that I have. Now, that's a hard thing to say, but that's what Ahab said. That was, uh, those were good words, but they're coming from a position of imminent defeat. There was no way he could have answered differently in that, at that point. I guess my question tonight is, have we said those words? Have we said that to our Lord? Uh, there's a knock at our door, and we're surrounded with our life, and our valuables, and the things we find important. And fortunately for us, outside our gate is no cruel tyrant. There's no Ben-Hadad out there. It's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And He's a loving Master. He could break the door down, but He doesn't. He could force His way in. He doesn't. He just simply invites that if we open the gate, He'll come in and sup with us and we with Him. Ahab no, had no choice, but we do. We have a choice in this matter. And we can uh, make of our life basically what we want. In fact, most people get out of life what they hope for. They pick a course in life, a certain destiny and a goal they have. Often their, their sense of direction points them to that goal and they'll find it. Pick men. You, you can think of some. Uh, they end a long ways apart. Uh, I know one. I've heard of others. I heard of a man recently who uh, bought a farm to build a house. He demolished all the buildings and went over the whole farm and couldn't find a spot. Nice enough and perfect enough, so he bought an adjacent piece of property yet to put a house on because it was better than this farm he had just bought. And uh he was a very conservative man. I, I met with Harold Kaufman not too long ago. He's been in Guatemala for a number of years, he's ninety, practically ninety. And I was in his bedroom, we had a little prayer meeting, went back there in his room and uh, in his room he had a table and a computer and a printer. He had a, a recliner where he slept, and he uh, had a few clothes in the closet, and that was about it. He has a place up in Wisconsin that his, uh, all his goods are stored. He has the rent paid ahead, the electric paid ahead, and when he dies, there will be no big sale. There will be no large estate uh, to deal with. Uh, these people are miles apart but our goals are going to be reflected in our ultimate destiny and the way we deal with this question. I accepted Christ when I was pretty young. Right here in this... I remember sitting here 10 years old and grappling with what I felt to be the call of God in my life. And I was too bashful to come forward, and I didn't. But at home in my room, I made this commitment. Yes, Lord, I'm going to... uh, Whatever you say, I'll do it. And I remember such a feeling of peace and contentment and joy and... I believe God took that small step of faith and blessed it. I remember standing up in the balcony the next evening wanting to stand up and give testimony. and I was waiting in one corner and he didn't see me and I didn't get to say anything. But uh, that was a long time ago. But I soon learned that it's not just a question about receiving Christ. It's a question about how closely will I walk with Him the rest of the time. Is this going to be a weekend relationship? Is it going to be an all-day, everyday relationship? Am I going to be in the driver's seat? Am I going to hand him the keys and let him uh, guide my life? And I finally, believe, came to this conclusion, however well or unwell it's been lived out, but that a mediocre Christian life really isn't worth it. It may as well be everything or nothing. That's the way it's designed to work. And I wonder tonight if you have faced that question, if you have given that answer, and... Uh, We need to remind ourselves we're bought with a price. We're not the servants of men. We are bought by the Lord Jesus. And these decisions of what my life will reflect and the direction I want to go is is not only my question, it's a question of, of lordship and what He has to say about my life. Jesus' work on Calvary was an expensive transaction. We didn't get to talk about that much this week, but the wounds that He took and the hatred that He bore and the death that He died And not for Himself. This is for others' guilt and others' sins. Others' benefit. Others' redemption. And He did it for us. And the result of that transaction was this basis, this foundation upon which we can become right with God uh, through faith, through what He did. We call it salvation, and it is. We call it free, and it is free for us, but it wasn't free and it wasn't cheap for Him. Now, Paul looked at that cross in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, and concludes this, that if it cost him something, this is going to cost me something too. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he says, "...for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves." but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Did you catch the logic in those two verses? There's some clear logic here in these verses. In the beginning stages of the Iraq War, I believe, this young man from Meadville, Pennsylvania, maybe you knew them, I don't know if you did. His name was Ross McGinnis, and he was a soldier in Iraq. And he and a few other guys were in this Humvee or some kind of large vehicle, And a hand grenade fell through the opening in the roof and landed there in in the middle of them. And he shouted a warning to the rest. Now I guess if a hand grenade would land in the middle of our church building, the windows would be too small to get out in time. Uh, This man didn't run for the exits. He threw himself on top of the grenade and covered it while it exploded. And the rest got out basically unhurt. And he was torn to shreds. And died there. Now, can you imagine what the rest of those four would feel like the rest of their life? They can see a sunrise today because someone else isn't seeing it. They can go home and uh, date a girlfriend or come home to their wife and children because someone else will never have that opportunity. And there's no way to repay that. There's always a sense of debt they'll carry until until they themselves aren't here. Now, Christ's purchase price deserves the purchased possession. If he paid full price, uh, who are we to say, uh, I'm withholding myself? It would be sort of like if you were looking at a a vehicle, a nice new vehicle at the car lot, and you went with cash in your pocket to buy it. And you walked into the office and you plunked down the cash and they counted it, and they wrote up a receipt, and they got out the title, and then they would tell you this, well, you have paid for it, and it's yours. We're going to keep it here on the lot. And anytime you need to use it, you call us and make arrangements. And we'll see if we can arrange that, let you use it for a while and then you can drop it off again. Uh, I don't think you would be happy with that kind of arrangement. Because if you bought it and you want to drive off with it, it's yours. And Jesus didn't buy us with such a price to let us go on and live our life like we choose. He bought us because... He wants to own us and make us part of His kingdom, His body and use us for His purposes and reflect His glory. And I see it amazing that after the cost that He paid and the price that He paid, that He still invites and He still waits and He doesn't break down the door to gain His purchased possession. He waits for us to respond to Him. Along with this invitation, He also makes His requirements pretty clear. I'd like to take you to Luke 14. These are uh, familiar verses. In Luke 14, verse 25, it says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then down in verse 33, So likewise, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Then he says something interesting. Salt is good, but if the salt had lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned, seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. Now, Jesus, these crowds were following, and most preachers would be excited by crowds. Jesus was not excited by numbers, he wanted commitment. And he turned around with a question that would sort out. The committed from the uncommitted. And he told them, these are the requirements. You want to follow me? There's, Well, the family ties must take second place. I don't know what that's meant for you. Maybe it doesn't mean as much for us as it has for some people. There are people that this this one has cost them a lot. There are people who uh, have been disowned and lost inheritances and even things like honor killings because they're willing to name Christ and follow Him. It could mean different things for different people. It says here to hate your own life. Think about that, what that means. There's nothing dear enough to me that would turn me aside from following Christ. Nothing I own, nothing I do, nothing I possess. that would be a, a stumbling block and a barrier that I would not be willing to follow Christ in spite of. Life itself is to be offered up. Life itself is on the altar for Him. You probably heard the story of Borden, the son of this uh, soup company man had was in line to inherit this business. I don't know how many years ago this was and uh, he was in college and studying to take on this business from his dad and but he became a Christian and was convinced he should be a missionary in Africa and he tried to convince his parents they were not happy with it, but he went anyway, and on the ship on the way over, he wrote. In his diary, No Reserves. He's going with no hold, uh, no reserves. He got there and began to work and he wrote, No Regrets. And he died soon after that. He got sick after a short time in Africa. But before he died, he wrote one more thing. No remorse. Life itself is worth pouring out for the One that gave His life for us. That's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Then it says, Forsake your possessions. Now, Jesus has poor disciples and Jesus has wealthy ones. Some people have a lot, some people have little. But one common element joins them, and that these possessions are on the altar. These things are under his lordship, whether it's much or whether it's little. We learn the life of giving, we learn the life of, of uh, holding things in an open hand and willingness to share. The problem with wealth is that so often it owns us instead of us owning it. When it gets turned that way, that's when things become a problem. As long as we can count all things as loss, but for the excellency of Christ, that's the position we need to hold. See, when Christ bought the farm, all the cows, all the equipment, everything came along with it. When He took possession of our life, it's not just the soul and nothing else. It's the whole thing. And that's how we need to look at it. Talks here about taking the cross and following. We talked a little bit about that last night. The identity with Christ and the uh, instrument of death to self-will and the commitment to Him. Now why do you think Jesus said at the end of that passage, salt that had lost its savor is worth nothing? I've puzzled over that and I've come to this conclusion. That Christianity without this concept of discipleship It's weak and it's empty and men cast it out because it really isn't what it ought to be. A person that's trying to serve the Lord and serve himself, dual lordship, trying to serve two masters, that's about as attractive as salt without flavor. There's an example in the Old Testament that's given in the law of what voluntary lordship looks like. This is a well-known picture. The law said that a man could not be made a servant more than seven years. And if that servant would serve his full time, he'd be let go after the seventh year, go back home and do his own life and, and live his own way. And uh... But what if the slave loved his master so much that he just wanted to stay? Uh, they would take this man up to a doorpost and get a nail or an awl and bore a hole in this man's ear. And the rest of his life, this hole would prove that he has given himself voluntarily to a master. And basically that hole was saying, I would rather... Live a slave for my master than live for myself without him, and that's a picture of discipleship. Who would rather serve the Lord for love than go and do my own thing without him? Uh, some people would look at that requirement here in in Luke 15, and say that's a high standard. That that costs a lot. Uh, is it possible that he's not asking a bit much of us here to? Uh, to take such a drastic position. It's a high cost. I really don't think that Jesus would have done anything less for us uh, than He's asking. I don't think He ever asks of us something that He has not already done for us. The only thing we can respond to the Lord is out of what He's already done for us anyway. We can't, uh, we can't best Him in any, any love. I believe we love out of His own love. I'd like to show you something in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, a couple of verses that show me a little bit how Jesus lived his life. I can find that here quickly. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now, when Jesus came, He knew that an offering was not enough, a contribution was not enough. So He came with this attitude. You've given me a body. You've given me a life. Here I am to do your will, whatever that will would be. And I believe that's the premise of the New Testament understanding of A relationship with with the Lord. That's how Jesus did it. When he came, this was his attitude. You've given me a body, that's what I'm going to give back. I'm giving you my life. Uh, His submission was a full time submission. He was sold in his father's business. And it's a human tendency to prefer offerings to discipleship. It's much easier to write a check than to be a disciple. It's so much easier to give something instead of giving myself. That's not how Jesus did it. I don't believe Jesus had any agenda beyond what the Father had willed for His life. I, he, was, uh, he was here to do the Father's will, carry out the Father's business. I don't believe fun motivated His life and His decisions and His choices. He lived with that purpose in mind. Now you might look at that and say, what a boring life. If our highest calling and our deepest goal was to do the will of God. That that sounds sort of limited, doesn't it? We would say, what a boring existence. I talked to a young man one time and we were speaking, I forget how we got on the conversation. There's a verse in, in John chapter 17, I think, that makes... Makes it clear that God loves us in the same way he loves his son Jesus. There's a verse there that says that. We were talking about what a wonderful thing this is that, that how is it that God could love us in the same way that he loved his own son? And, uh, and he answered this way. He said, Yeah, and he never let his son get married and he killed him on the cross. Uh, as if to say, the person that gives his life to the Lord fully is going to have his life ruined, he's going to get something second best. And uh, it's not going to go very well. And that's sort of the attitude he had. I, the underlying thought there is if I yield my life to God, He's going to ruin it and make me unhappy. Do we think this way? Uh, there's another verse in Hebrews in 1.9. Uh, I'd like to show you this about Jesus. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. In spite of the fact that Jesus was yielded so completely, there's a cause and effect here because you love righteousness and you hated iniquity, God has dumped on your head more oil of joy than anyone else has ever had. Which basically, I believe, is saying that Jesus is the happiest man that ever lived. As he was here and as he was going about his father's business, I believe he had more joy and more depth of, of happiness and contentment in his life than anyone else. It's because he didn't seek his life. He gave it. He didn't hold on to it. He yielded it. And here's a big paradox. The paradox is that joy does not come through seeking it. Joy comes through submission and yieldedness to God. If you lose something by force, that's painful. If you give it voluntarily, that's joyful. Uh, if somebody stole your wallet and you had $20 in it, you'd think, man, why wasn't I paying attention? Uh, that guy, he's so sneaky. But if you take that money and give it voluntarily to somebody that needs it, you'd feel totally different about that. If it was Ben-Hadad outside of the gate demanding it of us, it wouldn't work this way. Jesus simply asking that we serve Him If we voluntarily do it, that's where joy comes from. That's where it starts. Scripture talks about several instruments of surrender. And uh, the cross is one, I believe. If you look at the story of Job, that would show us some things. But here's one that I believe uh, helps me understand at least the surprising thing, that surrender is not ruin. Surrender is the portal to true joy and satisfaction. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit this evening. Think about an altar for a little bit. In the Old Testament, it was a platform. I don't know how high they built them. Either made of stone or of earth. And that altar served but one purpose. That was so that I as an Israelite could have brought something of value to me and just watched it go up in smoke before the Lord. There were different kinds of offerings. Some were eaten, some were not. Some were burned, some were given part to the priests. There was different ways of doing it. And I might bring the best bull I have or the best lamb I have and lay it there and watch it just turn into smoke. And uh, it's not good for anything anymore. Not good for eating. Not good for uh, selling. Not good for breeding stock. It's not even good for me to go out in the pasture and look at it because it's a nice animal. It's not good for anything. And all of that simply to show the Lord that I am devoted, I am serving you, and I love you, and I, I'm worshiping you. That was the point. Is a symbol of love. Now, Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, living sacrifice is worth a lot more to God than a dead one. I guess He received blessing because of their obedience, but how much better Jesus' sacrifice? You didn't want an offering. You didn't want a gift. You didn't want a sacrifice. You wanted me. And that's the basis for His service to His Father. When I realize God's claim on my life, and maybe you've faced this question, are you willing to say anywhere, uh, anyhow, and any when, I guess, uh, questions about whatever the Lord might want of my life, I'm willing. That's a general commitment. And we should say that. We should come to the point of a general yieldedness in our life to Him. That's very general. But then something specific comes along. And He says, shows us, convicts us, what about this thing right here? And uh, maybe you've faced that. Uh, I've faced some. Your location. Your hobby. Your habit. Your music. And because of that first general commitment, I said, Lord, I would do it. I just didn't know what what it would be back then. But here is one specific thing. Because of my commitment... And my willingness to go through it, then we do the specifics. We're willing to do that. There's several things here, about four, that I would see as necessary uses of an altar in our life. The first thing that I think that we need an altar for is to take care of unsanctified practices in our life. When we're born again, I wish the work would have been done 100% on the first day, but that's not how God does it. It's often an ongoing process. There's an initial cleansing. We come to the Lord. We confess our sin. We're forgiven. We're part of the kingdom. We're under His Lordship. And there's changes in our life. But God doesn't do all the work the same day. It's probably too much to handle in one day for us. It's a lifelong process. It's a process of Him revealing something and I responding to it. And then walking and revealing something and I'm responding to it. The more I walk in the light, the more the light exposes and the closer to the Lord I can become and and grow. And we tend to think this way. We think in terms of black and white and gray. And we understand up front that there are things that are definitely right and there are things that are definitely wrong and things that we just know belong in those two categories. But do you think like, I always thought, there's this big gray area in the middle that doesn't really matter to God and it's just neutral stuff and we dump a lot of stuff in the middle. It's, it's sort of there and we just sort of get along with it that way and we don't think He cares much. And uh, Our reading material, our music, our habits, our spare time, our hobbies, dump all that in there and, and uh, enjoy life that way. But I learned something. The closer a person gets to the Lord, the more we realize that God cares about things that we didn't realize He cared about. And the closer we walk to the Lord, that gray area becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And that doesn't mean there's things that you couldn't say are exactly right and exactly wrong. There's still things that I consider um, part of the enjoyment of life that doesn't. But I do think our life needs to be sanctified. And as we walk with the Lord, the sanctification happens. And when God brings these things up and points these things out, We realize that I can't walk any further with God and this thing. Something's going to have to give. I have to choose one or the other. That's when we go back to the altar. Because we're surrendered and because we've already said yes, we say, okay, Lord. You pointed it out. I agree. I don't understand it all, but it's yours. We walk with the Lord that way. The second thing that I think uh, the altar is valuable for is to deal with idolatry in our life. Maybe these things are closely related, but the heart is capable of locking itself on anything and holding on to it as in, well, I guess, like a little idol there. We think there's certain things I just couldn't be happy without. There's some things that I just couldn't get along without. It's a crutch, it's a source of maybe fulfillment of some type. Now, God allows that. I believe He likes to see us enjoying life, but sometimes He comes along and tests those things that we appreciate the most to see if what what position they hold in our life. And God sees that sometimes and He says, I have a higher joy for you if you could only let go of this. I believe the, the rich young ruler is a prime example of this. When he came to Jesus and he had an honest question, Lord, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him an honest answer. And if we come to the Lord with honest questions, I think we can get honest answers. And uh, Jesus told him, you sell what you have, and you give to the poor, and then you come and follow me. And I don't think that Jesus was pointing out the one good thing he could do to earn a life. I don't think in any way this was his ticket to heaven. It was not his ticket to being right with God. But Jesus was pointing out an idol there that was keeping him from it. I believe in this man's life, and you might could relate other things I could in my life, but something, his wealth had become an expression of his self-dependence, his self-reliance, his self-love, his self-sufficiency, his self-will. And uh, Jesus knew this man would never experience true devotion with this thing in his life unless he got some serious demotion. And uh, this man's attitude was not in such that he could have taken care of it that easily. And I sense sometimes that even legitimate things can stand between God and me. And especially when He touches it and I cling more tightly. And He nudges it and I grasp it even tighter still. And what happens is that something that maybe wasn't such a big deal begins to represent my self-will and represent my, my resistance for God's voice. And, and then it becomes a real problem. I don't think we need to go around just giving up things to, make, to try to gain favor with God. God will reveal it if it's a problem. But I do believe that one, one mark of a person that walks with God is uh, idols being ejected as God shows us these things. That's part of the new birth process, the sanctification process. The third reason I believe altars are important is simply for a purpose of testing. We see that different times through Scripture. Now, Job's altar was different than Abraham's altar. Think about those two men for a bit. Job lost everything he had in one day. He had no say in the matter, no choice. Abraham was asked to give something up voluntarily. And sometimes we're tested like Job, and sometimes it's easier that way because we have no say in the matter. We have no choice to make. Uh, Maybe the cows die, or the engine blows, or the, the appliance goes out, or the friends leave, or the crops fail, or whatever happens... This disaster. Nobody asked me about it. And it just happened. And I love the way Job responded because it showed his heart was in the right place. So the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Basically was saying, these things weren't really mine anyway. And it doesn't, doesn't defeat my faith in Christ because they're not here. And sometimes we're tested like that. And... Uh, Our attitude needs to be the same. An altar attitude. I never really possessed it. It was given and it was mine because God gave it, but it's His right. Sometimes we're tested like Abraham. Sometimes asked to give something up, to change something, to make us do something different. Sometimes this comes as a consequence of greater service, not just because. Uh, When I went to Guatemala, I faced this a little bit. I, was a, uh, I enjoyed playing the guitar up here and I loved fishing and spending time outdoors. And uh, called to go to Guatemala where there were, the, the mission said no guitars because of the, the cultural effects of that and uh, no fishing, no hunting. The only deer were in the zoo and they wouldn't like if a person would hunt those. So uh, all of a sudden I was missing the very things I loved the most. And it took me a while to get over that. I missed it. Sometimes to test us. I believe God is capable of doing this and sometimes will. Uh, Says, would you be willing to do something different here? And often here the human logic kicks in and says, uh, but everybody reads that book. Even the preacher has that music. Even, is there any, where does this come from? And uh, I, would, I would throw out a caution here. I, I guess I tend to be a bit of a sensitive nature and maybe I struggle with this more than others. Uh, but sometimes I believe it is possibly misled through our own feelings about things. And uh, I believe the Pharisees invented expressions of, of uh, spirituality God never asked for. I think uh, it's valuable to think about this Does the nudging persist in my life, or is it a passing whim? Uh, Is there anything in Scripture that supports this? Uh, What would other mature brethren say? I would ask them about this, so we can gain some value and maybe some insight in our our nudgings through the voice of the brotherhood. Here, I think that when God nudges things, often He would love to bring us closer into a fellowship of brotherhood, not out into more independence. But He will. We need to discern and not be driven by feelings. Especially if we have an extra sensitive conscience. I think we also have to understand that in God's personal dealings with us, He has every right to speak directly into our hearts, and we better be listening. And God will often deal with us personally. We need to be hearing and be obedient to that. Then there's the altar of willingness simply a willingness about everything in life. It's here, and we put life's plans on the altar, but we don't stop planning. We put my income on the altar, we don't stop earning. We put life's enjoyments and everything we have on the altar, we don't stop enjoying them. But the willingness is there. It's already been thought about. It's sort of like a pre-decision that whatever God's will for my life will be, I've already decided that I'm willing to walk with Him through it. And there's no spiritual benefit, I guess, in making vows of austerity just because. I promise I will never eat ice cream again, or I promise I will never get married, or anything like that. It's simply a commitment to walk with the Lord and accept circumstances that He brings into my life and keep following. Before we leave altars, I'd like to show you a principle that I've found to be true. And I hope you've found it to be true. And I even hesitate to say this because there's people here that have suffered through things that I've never gone through and faced things I've never had to face and maybe built altars in ways I've not had to build them. I'd love to hear from you sometime if you'd experience this principle that I'd like to point out. Abraham was an altar builder and he also went through some altar experiences. And uh, I'd like to point this out because he experienced something that's very beautiful. This is a long study. We don't have to go through, through and, and look at all these scriptures. But if you go back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7, it gives a story of Abraham's first call with the Lord And God told him, I'm sending you to a place far away. I want you to leave your home and family and go. And he did. He packed up and went. And you can imagine the leaving the family. This isn't like moving to Floyd County, you know. This is a long trip and he'll probably never be back. And the goodbyes and the leaving and the going apart and the difficult trip and this strange land when he got there. When he arrived, it says the first thing he did in verse 7 was build an altar to the Lord. Now he had an altar experience in the leaving. The saying yes to the Lord and saying no to what was comfortable and going away. That was the altar experience. When he got there, he built an altar and worshiping the Lord. And basically what it shows me is that he's gotten there, he's arrived, and he's saying, Lord, I've done what You've said. I've come where You've called. And I'm here, I'm worshiping. I'm still worshiping and following You. He's yielded. In the next chapter, in Genesis 13, he faces another experience. different one this time. There's a famine in the land. And so he goes to Egypt. And he, I don't know how long he's in Egypt. But when he comes back in chapter 13, he is wealthy. And he has servants and cattle and gold and silver and many things. And it says he returned to the place of the altar that he had built before. And he worshipped the Lord. And I believe he's still saying, Lord, you've blessed me. I am very wealthy, but I'm still here. I'm still surrendered. I'm still worshipping. And I'm here because uh, I want to keep on doing it that way. Then we have Genesis 13. Genesis 13, we have this disagreement between Lot and Abraham. They were both wealthy. Now, Abraham was a sent one. Lot was a tag along. Abraham had the promise. Uh, Lot got some side benefits. And here they had this clash over the herdsmen and not enough space. And Abraham was very open. He said, Lot, you decide. We have the option of the plains down here, the mountains back here. Uh, you make your choice, Now go the opposite direction. Let's separate. And here Lot, uh, in his self-advancement, took the best and left the heir of the land with the worst. And uh, Abraham left the best. He went out the other way, back to Mamre. And after that experience, he built another altar when he got to Mamre. He, uh, he watched Lot take the best of the land he went over here and built an altar to the Lord and worshiped there. And it's sort of a symbolic thing, I see. You gave, you took away. I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm worshiping anyway. I'm here to do it. Then in Genesis 22, there's a big gap here between these two chapters. But In Genesis 22, Abraham is older. He was 100 when Isaac was born. And I don't know how old he is in this chapter. Abraham had waited for this child for 24 years. Uh, prayed for him. And this story in Genesis 22 is a story of Abraham's hardest test. God spoke to him and it seems like the next morning he was up and going. He didn't spend days and weeks agonizing and asking for signs and direction. He simply got up and went. He took his son, he took the wood, and he took a knife and went three days' journey to this Mount Moriah to sacrifice the most precious thing he had. And up on the on the mountain, Abraham built his last altar. I don't see in scripture he built another one afterwards. This is the last one he built. And he laid on the wood, and he laid on his son, and he raised the knife. Now, we need to understand something about sacrifices here and yieldedness. When God asks for something, he's not interested in the something as he is interested in us. Because what he's most after is not a thing, he wants a yielded will. And it was not Isaac being tested. It was Abraham being tested in this thing. Laying down his. I, I, I don't doubt he would have much rather given his own life than do what he was about to do with his son. And uh, it was symbolic. Lord, even now I'm willing. Now, Abraham's attitude was the same as Jesus' attitude. You're not after a thing, you're after a life. A, you've given me a body to serve you with, and here I am to do it. And all through life, abraham this is Abraham's experience. A series of altar experiences and yieldedness and, and giving things back to the Lord. Now notice in his life, three major altar experiences. He left home and family. He yielded the best of the land to somebody that didn't deserve it. Then he offered Isaac something more precious in his own life. But notice something else. After every altar experience, God met with him. Every time he gave something like that, every time he, he accepted the Lord's will in something, God met him there. After arriving in Canaan, God met with him and said, I'm going to give you all this land. You've obeyed. You've come. and I'm going to give you all this. After he left Lot in the bastion and built his altar in memory, God met with him. And it said, walk the land up and down. All of it. It's all yours. And after surrendering Isaac, after he raised a knife and God said, whoa, stop. God said, because you haven't withheld the very best you have, I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you descendants, your descendants are going to be a blessing in all the earth. It's almost like God was saying, you gave your best to me, I'm going to give my best to you. And uh, here's, the, here's the principle. When I face an altar, and I say yes to the Lord, God is there to meet me on the other side and walk with me from there on. And that's a principle that holds true, I believe, even now. Uh, another blessing. Another revelation. Uh, a deeper understanding. And this is a life of beautiful surprises. We're willing to walk with the Lord and say yes. Uh, this is the nature of our God. We can't give back to God something He hasn't given us first. But even as we give back that which He has given to us, He meets us and gives us even more. as a blessing. And I'm not talking just stuff and things and material blessings. This is giving us of Himself. I don't think God ever requires something of us that He does not replace with something deeper and sweeter and more joyful and more fulfilling than that thing that we were so hesitant to lay down. We need to be careful about this thing. Somebody told me one time, you said that if I would give something up, God would give me something better. And uh, that's not what I meant. What I meant to say was that as we yield of ourselves, God will fill that and God will meet us and bless us and uh, God will be there for us. We're not after a thing. We're after the presence and the blessing of God on our life. Sometimes God tests our weaknesses. The things that we hold dear and maybe struggle in. Uh, things that are maybe approaching idle status just to test our, our willingness. I remember a time in Guatemala when I had a set of books that I thought were pretty important and God touched that. I remember some tapes I had that I thought were pretty good and God touched that. And I remember building fires and I remember going to the outhouse with some music and dropping them down there. and uh, Even giving up the guitar and the uh, things that were difficult for me to give. But the result of that, what was it? It was simply a freshness and a deepening and a joy and a freedom that I hadn't experienced before, as as we said yes. I grew up a bit of a penny penny pincher, I guess, uh, sort of tight with cash. And when I was in Guatemala, as a VSser, our our standard salary was $75 a month for spending money, which wasn't a lot. And some of the other VSers that were there would gripe and nah, I can't wait for our next paycheck, I'm out of money. And I had two or three checks I hadn't even cashed yet. A Pepsi was a big investment for me back then. And, uh, but sometimes God comes and tests areas like that. See, the downside was I wasn't very generous with other people either. One night I got a call from another pastor about midnight. Can you help my son? He's on the way to the States. He's in Mexico. And the guide there is saying you've got to pay up $1,000. I can't remember what it was. Or else he's going to kill him. Not going to take him any further. Would you do it? Uh, I said, Well, I don't think I can. They want to support people going to the States illegally, but eh. So I said, uh, Look around, see what you can find. I don't feel good about doing this. Okay, well, he wasn't very happy. About four days later, he called back and said, Well, he's up in Texas now, and uh, he's in the hotel with a coyote. And all the other guys that went up are gone. He's staying there with him. And he's saying, if he doesn't have a bunch more money, by tomorrow noon, he's going to die. And he's this guy, he's pastor's son. And uh, that was a struggle. What do I do? So I talked to a few people and I said, well, it's available. I can do this. And so I did. I went to the bank and I got stuff set up. And by noon, I was depositing the money and it was... It was uh, on the way, and this guy was so relieved. His wife was so happy. They called and said, thank you, thank you, because this man is, is now free. I, I guess that sometimes does happen that people that can't pay uh, don't get a chance to work it off either. That was, a, that was a, uh, an, sort of an altar experience to cough that up and give that over. But about a year went by, and about the same time in the calendar, uh, gifts started coming back. And sources that I wasn't aware were even interested and They came in and when I totaled it up, it was almost the same amount that I'd given to this man a year before. He never, never came back and paid anything up. But God took care of it in other ways. And later, somebody else said, is it true that you loan so-and-so? I'd like to pay that back. Okay. And uh, God takes care of people. Would God do that again? Not necessarily. But what He wants to show us is He's able to take care of us when we say yes. There's other examples of that. We don't have to go into personal details. But The materialistic person would say, well, great, let's do it that way and God will give me four times more. Uh, But that's not the point. The point is that God knows, God cares, and God can provide when we face altars and say yes. And... uh, he doesn't promise us material gain, but He promises to be there for us and walk with us and give us the deep joy that he, he only can give. Now, I need to emphasize this as we close. It's wrong to think that if I surrender something to the Lord, that puts Him into debt with me. I can never put God into debt with me. doesn't matter what I do or how much I yield of myself. I will always be God's debtor. You could go to the Amazon and you could... Bury your family one by one. You could die a snake bite. And you would still be in debt to God. He wouldn't be in debt to you. God still owes me nothing. All my life, He is the giver and I am the debtor. That's how life works. But the question to answer is simply that has the issue of lordship been established in our life? If He's standing outside our door saying, I've purchased you and I want possession of your life. That's the question. Withholding ourselves is a frustrating Christian experience. With, with Him in charge, our life can be like salt and light and something beautiful. Without Him in charge, it's like salt without flavor. It's like something that's going to be cast out and useless. And probably the single greatest influence on the trajectory of our life is whether or not we can come to this issue and say, yes, all that I have is Thine. And live that way. Let's pray. Father, we bow before You this evening. Thank You for showing us over and over that You do care and You do uh, take care of us. And even as You lead us through hard places, You have joy waiting for us. And there's deep things that we can learn about You. And and in our walk with You, we can experience great satisfaction. If we've experienced... uh, dissatisfaction, maybe confusion and uh, things in our Christian life that shouldn't be there, I pray that you could help us to know how to yield on these points and allow you full access to your purchased possession in our life. Bless this group of people, especially these young people, as they face life with choices to make. I pray that first of all this can be established in their experience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like saying just a verse of song with this question if there's something in your life that you know symbolizes a resistance towards God's will, and you're going to say tonight, yes, I have decided that it's not worth holding on and keeping God out. I invite you to respond just by standing and showing that you're, you're serious here. Does our chorus we have a song to sing while we think about our situation? If you sense a need, just say, yes, Lord. And it's between you and God. Say, my word.